you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We're so pleased to have with us for our daily update on COVID-19, Dr. Timothy Brewer of the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, where he's epidemiologist and professor of medicine. He's been an advisor and on review committees for multiple investigations of the World Health Organization, National Institutes of Health, and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Brewer, very good morning to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Larry. want to start first with um, the FDA approving booster doses of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine for 16- and 17-year-olds. Uh, this is pending now CDC recommendation, but your thoughts on the FDA approval that came this morning? So, not surprising, Larry, given that they've been using data for 18 and older to apply to 16 and 17 year olds. So I'm actually not aware that there are any new data in 16 or 17 year olds, but I think the FDA is just saying, look, based on how we know the vaccine is working in this age group, it's behaving just like an adult. Since we've already approved the booster for adults, it makes sense to approve it for this age group as well. Now, given the rare, but, um, but, sometimes occurring cases of myocarditis um, of, of inflammation around the heart in some younger uh, males, particularly who got the Moderna vaccine. Is it possible we will not see that same rec- uh, recommendation for Moderna booster? So it, it's certainly possible. I think we'll just have to wait and see the data. The myocarditis actually occurs with both mRNA vaccines. So um, the Pfizer vaccine is used extensively in Israel, and Israel does have myocarditis associated with use with the Pfizer vaccine. So the myocarditis is not specific to Moderna, but it does seem to be more common in the mRNA based vaccines. And then I wonder if Moderna using a half dose in its booster of what was given in the first two uh, vaccine injections of Moderna, might that be beneficial for younger, particularly males who would have some degree of risk of this? So, so it's certainly possible. We don't know exactly why the myocarditis occurs, but you are correct that the, the original Moderna vaccine had a 
a larger dose of mRNA in it compared with uh, the Pfizer. So it was about three times more the amount of mRNA in the Moderna vaccine that may have translated into the slightly higher efficacy we see with the Moderna vaccine, but could also be related with the risk of adverse events. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Brewer, UCLA School of Public Health. A chance for you to ask your questions of him. He joins us regularly in these special COVID-19 update segments. I was looking at two very interesting Israeli studies of Pfizer uh, vaccine booster, which showed an enormous uh, benefit of the booster vaccine uh, over uh, the two doses of the vaccine once I think was passed the five-month mark, um, showing like a 90% increase in effectiveness against deaths for those who were boosted. Uh, I was wondering if you had a chance looking at at, uh, the studies from the New England Journal of Medicine and and your thoughts on what it showed about the power of the booster. So I think we have good data to show that uh, boosters do in fact boost. So you can demonstrate both a increased immune response in the laboratory, and at least from Israel, uh, efficacy among individuals as well. So I think that's terrific news. But yes, the boosters do a lot, but the vaccines do a lot too. So if you look across all the studies, and there have been over 122 studies done on vaccine efficacy, the the breakthrough infection rate in vaccinated individuals is running about 1% or less. So these vaccines are still very, very good. All right. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Debbie in Hollywood says, I'm vaxxed and boosted, and I'm getting a lot of invitations to holiday parties. I'm not sure if everyone in attendance will be vaxxed and boosted as well. What does Dr. Brewer think about the safety level of holiday get-togethers right now? So I think one of the advantages of being in Southern California is we can have our holiday get-togethers outside, and there's very minimal risk of SARS-CoV-2 transmission in outdoor settings. So that's clearly the safest thing you can do. Uh, Do not go to a holiday get-together if you're not feeling well, so please do stay home if you're feeling sick. Um, Otherwise, please feel free to get together. Ideally, everybody's been vaccinated. If they haven't been vaccinated, try to be outside. Wear a mask when you're indoors. If you're around people, you're not usually around. And remember to practice good hand washing. Does it make a difference if it's an indoor setting, if weather doesn't allow or you've got people who just would be extremely uncomfortable to be outside weather-wise? Is, is it safer to have cross-ventilation and doors open to that, to that room than to be in a sealed, you know, shut room? So, so ventilation is one of the factors that will affect transmission from person to person. The others are time and distance and contagiousness, right? So um, certainly improving ventilation will lower the risk. Being farther apart will lower the risk. Wearing masks that will reduce the risk of either excreting viral particles or inhaling viral particles will lower over the risk. So all of those factor 
factor into it. But the most most important thing is please get vaccinated and, and boosted if you haven't already done so and you're eligible. We uh, looked at uh, your number of the new studies that have come out, and one really caught my attention from the New York Times, uh, where they published results of this study uh, from Stanford University School of Medicine, which uh, suggests that uh, the coronavirus attacks, attacks fat tissue, that it can infect fat cells directly. Now, we know that people who are obese and overweight have a higher risk of hospitalization and death from COVID-19, that it is one of those comorbidities. But I had always assumed that was because that lung function was impaired because of the size of the individual, that that was really the factor. This indicates that it might be more than that with fat cells actually playing a role in harboring COVID-19. Your, your thoughts on this research, Dr. Brewer? So, so what was interesting about that study, Larry, was while adipose cells or fat cells, if you want, can be infected, even though they don't really express the ACE2 2 receptor, uh, what I found interesting about that study was the high rate of infection actually in the tissue macrophages in the fat cells. So these are the immune cells that are living within the fat cells, and they actually had a much higher rate of infection than the fat cells themselves and could be contributing to the inflammatory response that we know leads to se- severe COVID-19 disease. Is this something that was suspected before or or I mean I, how revelatory is this? Well, we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can infect a number of different cell types. So we knew that it could infect lung cells and heart cells and kidney cells and 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 neurons. So it, it's not entirely surprising that it can infect adipocytes as, as well. But I do think the fact that these macrophages are preferentially being infected, given that these are immune active cells, is a very interesting finding. Marco in Westminster uh, says, uh, Dr. Brewer, can you explain how T cells are helpful in fighting the virus? And does the booster impact how T cells work in our bodies? So... There are a number of different kinds of T cells, and they can do a lot of a lot of useful things. One is there are certain kinds of T cells that are very good at recognizing abnormal cells. So remember, in order for a virus to replicate, it has to be inside of a cell. Well, if it's inside of a cell, and then an antibody can't get to it. But a T cell can still recognize that that cell is abnormal, having the virus inside it, and then destroy it. So that's a a very important function of of T cells. Another thing that T cells do is they're kind of like the conductors of an orchestra. They can get the whole immune system working together to respond to an infection. And then as the infection gets under control, actually 
slow the immune system down. So they play a very important role. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Brewer, UCLA School of Public Health. We're taking your questions for him at 866-893-KPCC or email them to atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location, as Andy in West L.A. did. Why hasn't the Moderna double-dose vaccine uh, been approved as, uh, I think he means as a booster, no, double-dose, been FDA-approved, still only approved for emergency, oh, fully approved, the original dose. I think that's what he he means. Why is it still just emergency use authorization? Uh, Terrific question. I would assume that it's because they have not submitted the necessary data to the FDA, but but I don't don't actually know. All right. 866-893-KPCC. Chris in Century City says, I have high blood pressure. I'm 68. I received the J&J vaccine. And I wonder, does it matter which mRNA vaccine I take as a booster considering my high blood pressure? So, no, no clear evidence to say that there's an advantage of Pfizer over Moderna or vice versa. There are some preliminary data to show, though, that if you boost with an mRNA vaccine as opposed to getting a second dose of the J&J, you'll actually get a a much better response. So J&J followed by an mRNA booster seems to be an excellent combination. Grayson Echo Park says, I'm a college instructor. I teach face-to-face. One of my students who was vaccinated contracted COVID recently. So is a breakthrough infection more common with the new Omicron variant? Grace wants to know. Also, it appeared to be a relatively mild case. So does getting vaccinated reduce the appearance of symptoms when you become infected? So breakthrough cases in vaccinated individuals are uncommon, as I said, and tend to be occur less than 1% of the time. When they do occur, they do tend to be more mild or moderate. And there are data in the laboratory and viral studies to show that vaccinated people seem to clear the virus faster than unvaccinated individuals. So those are those are all the good parts of and, being back. And with Omicron, um, we, we, it appears that it is more infectious, right? That it's, it, it is easier to transmit? Correct. So we're, we're still looking at those data. There's, there's one preprint that I'm aware of, 12 individuals, six given the Pfizer vaccine, six previously infected and given Pfizer to show that neutralizing antibodies from these individuals are less likely to recognize Omicron than, than earlier variants. But not a whole lot of data, a report out of Germany. I haven't actually seen the data that Boosted Pfizer people still have a good immune response to Omicron, but, you know, we're kind of in the dark at the moment as to how well the vaccines are going to work. Roberta in Koreatown wonders, would someone with a mitochondrial deficiency be more susceptible to COVID-19? Wow. Um, Roberta, I'm actually not aware of any data one way or the other, and I can't think of a reason immediately 
other than depending on how the deficiency might affect the immune response. So immune cells require mitochondria for energy, just like every other cell in the body does as well. But I'm not aware of any data. Janine in Huntington Beach says, after two doses and my Moderna booster, I'm experiencing COVID arm. How long does it take for that to go away? I, now, I'm not familiar with COVID arm. Yeah, I don't know if she's talking about uh, the soreness that can last after receiving the injection. Oh, she is. Okay, good. Uh, I didn't know if this was like a, a part of long COVID or something. So, yeah, wondering about the pain in her arm. My, mine went away after several days. But uh, had, there, had there been any studies on, on the median uh, time factor with the arm pain? So there are actually two different kinds of arm pain. One is the one that tends to show up about 12 to 24 hours after the vaccination. And that usually runs anywhere from about 24 to 48 hours. There's a a second sort of delayed hypersensitivity reaction associated with a rash and swelling that tends to show up about seven days after vaccination. And that, unfortunately, usually hangs around for anywhere from about three to five days before it goes away. So that one tends to last a little longer. But both of them do go away and do not seem to be associated with any long-term side effects or problems. And do we do we know what causes that second, that delayed and longer-lasting reaction with the rash? Yeah, it's, it's probably related to the immune response to the to the vaccination, and it tends to occur more with the second doses. Um, I'm not aware of data regarding the boosters, but I would assume the boosters would be equally likely to do it as well. Julian Sherman Oaks, uh, wondering what's the latest on approval of the Novavax vaccine in the U.S.? I know people who haven't been vaccinated yet who might be more willing to get Novavax because of the type of vaccine it is. Right. So Novavax, a protein-based vaccine, sort of a more traditional approach, I'm not aware that they have submitted any data yet. I know there have been studies both in the United States and Australia. It seems to be very effective, but I'm not aware that they've submitted any data to the FDA for approval. Uh, Marie in Silver Lake emailed us, we have doctors in our family that chose to have their kids refrain from all sports and heavy activity that would raise their heart rate for about three weeks after receiving the vaccine in hopes it would lower their chances of myocarditis. Is that helpful? No data that I'm aware of. When myocarditis occurs, it does tend to occur within the first month after vaccination. But again, if you're worried about myocarditis, remember that the risk of myocarditis is about three to four times higher if you actually get SARS-CoV-2 infection. So definitely get vaccinated. And you could also consider using an adenovirus-based vaccine. So in this case, J&J, which has not been associated with myocarditis. 
Richard in Irvine emailed us, Last week I saw a warning in the journal Circulation that the mRNA vaccines increase the risk of a heart attack by over 100% for at least two and a half months. I had a heart attack last year. Now I'm even more hesitant to get the vaccine. Am I being unreasonable? And he uh, attached a link to the abstract of the study, which is on AHA journals. I assume that's American Heart Association. Uh, Dr. Brewer, do you know anything about this? No. So actually, I, I was not aware of that study, and I will pull it today after half we're, we're done and take a look at it. But I think if Richard has any concerns, he should sit down with his healthcare provider and discuss the study with him or her and work through their concerns. But I thank him for making me aware of that study, and I'll make sure to take a look at it. I, I love our listeners like Richard don't only raise the issue. They send the link to the abstract. They just, I love it. We have the best listeners and, and so thorough. We appreciate it very, very much. Chuck in Temple City, if someone's infected with the Omicron variant, does that keep them from being infected by a different variant at the same time or immediately following the one illness? So reinfection with any variant is very low. There are some data to suggest out of South Africa that reinfection with Omicron is occurring more frequently than previously occurred with either alpha or beta, both of which circulated in South Africa. Um, how common multiple variants at once occurs, I, I don't know. We know it can happen with influenza virus. I assume it's possible to happen with coronaviruses, but I, I haven't actually seen any data. All right. Uh, we have Denise in Crenshaw Manor emailed us, are uh, any of the vaccines better at developing more T-cell protection than others? Terrific question. Um, good question for an immunologist. I'm not, I'm not aware. We don't routinely measure T cell responses to, to vaccination. And actually, most of the studies that have looked at vaccine effectiveness have focused primarily on neutralizing antibodies. All of the vaccines do seem to generate an effective T cell response, but whether one is higher than another, I'm not I'm not sure. And before I let you go, I've got to ask you about uh, this study that looks at the time of day that people received their vaccinations and seeming to indicate that those who were vaccinated in the afternoon had a better antibody response than those who were vaccinated in the morning. Why would this even be? Well, um, I I'm not aware of that study, but our, our bodies do have circadian rhythms to them. So our, our immune systems, particularly our cortisol levels, uh, change during the day, um, throughout the day. And so it's entirely possible that that's somehow influencing the response to the vaccine. But uh, if they sent you the link to that study, I'd Love to take a look at it too. Yeah, it's apparently was done at, at Mass General. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Clerman uh, in neurophysiology. Um, she's the co senior author of the report at Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, she says um, this study from the um, uh, 
SoCal News Group papers. Our observational study provides proof of concept that time of day affects immune response to SARS-CoV-2 vaccination, findings that may be relevant for optimizing the vaccine's efficacy. Uh, Clerman and her colleagues looked at antibody levels after vaccination among 2,200 healthcare workers in the UK, created a model to investigate the effect on antibody levels based on time of day, age, sex, and other factors. Uh, They got either Pfizer or AstraZeneca as the vaccine. Antibody response is higher in general for everyone vaccinated after 11 a.m. compared with people who got the shot earlier in the morning. I thought that was fascinating. Be interesting to see if that holds up. Very interesting to see if it holds up and interesting to see if it is related to underlying circadian rhythms and cortisol levels. Thank you so much, Dr. Brewer. It's such a pleasure to have you with us, as always. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.